Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Now, with that being said, uh, we're going to start off a new sermon series today, and I want to begin uh, by reading Scripture together. So uh, if you would, would you stand with me? We're going to read from Genesis chapter 32, and from our student section, I'm going to invite, you're not Trisha. I'm going to invite Rex up. And uh, Rex is going to come, and he's going to read from the passage. You got it, Rex? Uh, He's reading from the New Living Translation. It'll be the same one that you guys have on the screen. I don't know. Yeah, it's on. You good? After taking them to the other side, he sent over all his possessions. This left Jacob all alone in the camp, and a man came and wrestled with him until the dawn began to break. When the man saw that he would not win the match, he touched Jacob's hip and wrenched it out of its socket. Then the man said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. What is your name? The man asked. He replied, Jacob. Your name will no longer be Jacob, the man told him. From now on, you will be called Israel, because you have fought with God and with men and have won. Please tell me your name, Jacob said. Why do you want to know my name? The man replied. Then he blessed Jacob there. Jacob named the place Peniel, which means face of God. For he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been spared. The sun was rising as Jacob left Peniel, and he was limping because of the injury to his hip. Thanks, Rex. Word of the Lord. You can be seated. Rex, did you think it was a joke when I asked you to read that passage? Because that's a strange one. We'll get there. We'll get there. All right, welcome. Today we're starting off a new series. We're going to roll with it for the next four weeks, um, and it's a series called Unpacking Faith. Unpacking Faith. And the series is going to be aimed at just that. I want to help you unpack your faith. Here's the reality for all of us. As we walk through this faith journey we call life, we all pick up baggage along the way, right? Some of it's good. Some of it's necessary. Some of it's absolutely essential in order to survive and thrive in life. But... Some of it's not so good. Some of it's not necessary. In fact, some of it is extremely heavy and it just feels like it's weighing you down over time. The goal of this series is to name that. It's to look at our faith baggage, open up the suitcase, figure out what's good inside, what's bad inside, and figure out what we do with what's bad inside, how to unload it, how to think through it in a healthy way. This is a series made for people like me, because if you know me, I am wired like a skeptic. So throughout this series, maybe I'm just preaching to me, but I imagine it might be some of you as well. Here's some of the things we're going to address. I made a list for you. We're going to look at the good beliefs and the bad beliefs we were given as kids. We're going to look at the questions we have that remain unanswered. We're going to talk about the trauma and the pain we've experienced from the church or how to deal with the hypocrisy and idolatry inside the church. We're going to try to understand how we should handle faith disappointment. And uh, we're going to try to figure out how to deal with doubt and with deconstruction. And that's honestly at the heart of this series. See, I have heard lots of sermons, read lots of books that uh, address 
how skeptics can move from doubt into faith. I haven't seen very many, though, that address what we should do when we feel like we're sliding from faith into doubt. How do we find our footing? What do we do next? That's where we're aiming at this series. And um, if that's you, then this series is for you. But even more importantly, if you have a loved one, a friend, a family member, maybe an adult kid, a high schooler, a college student who's asking lots of questions right now, I'm gonna tell you this, this series is gonna equip you to, to deal with that better in a more healthy way. Now, uh, recently I was reading a book on deconstruction, on doubt, called uh, After Doubt. It's written by a guy named A.J. Swoboda. He's a theologian, great book, recommended reading for anybody in here who's into nerd stuff like that. But in his book, uh, he explains that basically uh, as we grow up, we go through three phases of belief formation. All right, made a diagram for you. Uh, phase one is the construction phase, when our faith's built. Phase two is the deconstruction phase, when we start asking questions. And phase three is the reconstruction phase, when we build something a bit more true. Let's, let's talk through all through these first. The construction phase. For most of us, this happens when we're kids. When we uh, receive what, what Swoboda calls pre-critical beliefs. Basically, we're just given beliefs as kids. We don't think a whole lot about them, don't apply critical thought to them. We just embrace them because mom says so, because grandpa says so, or because the mentors and authority figures in our life said so. When I was a kid, uh, I was told that, um, that the Bible was authoritative. And I just believed it, even though I came to find out later that there's some really actually tough stuff in there that I got questions about. I was just told that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believed it even though we know that dead people stay dead. So it's like, how does that work, right? I just believe that our God, as Christians, was a triune God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three in one, one in three. Like, that math makes sense, right? And I just believed it. I didn't ask the hard questions about how does that actually work out in the mystery of God therein? Uh, as a kid, I was also given some pretty wild beliefs about Revelation and the end of times. I was given a pretty restrictive view on women and their leadership and their giftedness. Throw all that, the good, the bad, the ugly, all in the same pot. And as a kid, I just, honestly, I just embraced it. And it wasn't until I got a little older in life where I started putting these beliefs under the microscope and investigating whether or not they're true. What I, what I believe, what the scriptures actually say about them. Which brings us to phase two. That's phase two, the deconstruction phase. Where we actually start looking at our beliefs and saying, okay, well, what, what do I think about this? Is this really true? Is this really indicative of the God and the Jesus that I see in scripture? Now, I think there are several things that trigger us uh, into deconstruction. So again, I made a list for you and I just wanna read to you a few experiences. Maybe you've had one of these. These are the sort of experiences that make us start asking questions. Uh, Like first, you meet a genuinely good, happy and fun person who believes different than you. And you're like, oh, wait a minute. I thought you could only be happy with God, but they're like happy. So you start to deconstruct a little bit, right? Or you take a class from a really super smart professor who thinks differently than you. And you're like, whoa, what do I do with this? Or, or there's a moral failure by a pastor or a Christian leader that you respect and it erodes the credibility of the church. Or, or you realize your church is like low-key racist and you're like, oh, that's not good. Or, or you realize you're given a theology growing up that leveraged shame, guilt, and fear, and it traumatized you. Or something awful happens to you. This is a really popular one, right? Something awful happens to you. 
And you wonder how in the world a God of love could let you suffer like this. So you start to deconstruct. Or maybe you just have a bunch of Bible questions. You're like, all right, like seven literal days, Jonah and the whale, miracles, uh, you know. How in the world did Noah get all the dinosaurs on the ark? Somebody explain that to me. I need my questions answered. Or this one's, this one's real, y'all. Uh, somebody said, uh-huh, to this one I said at last service. You realize that the sweet old ladies who taught you Sunday school are just wild on Facebook. <laughs> like the stuff they, like politically compromised, like conspiracy, you're like, oh, what is going on? Okay. Um, or, okay, this one's good. One of the most powerful triggers for deconstruction is uh, what I would call cultural scorn or disparagement. Uh, this is when we realize that, uh, that people are gonna think less of us because of our Christian beliefs. And so we think twice about them. And I'm not just talking about bad Christian beliefs, I'm talking about true ones, orthodox ones, orthodox Christian practices. All of a sudden we realize, well, man, if I live this out, I might lose some friends or at least lose the respect of people out there in the outside world, if you will. So that can lead us to deconstruct. This is the deconstruction phase, y'all. And pretty much all of us go, to it, uh, go through it to, through, uh, uh, through varying degrees. Now, uh, with that in mind, I wanna speak to a very like, specific group of people in the room right now, okay? I, want to, uh, I wanna talk to the people who aren't necessarily deconstructing, but who love someone who is. Okay, maybe you got a loved one, maybe you got a family member struggling with doubt, maybe you got an adult kid who's wrestling with this, all right? If that's you today, here would be my advice to you. Okay. Lean in with them. Like cannonball, like jump, d- dive in, cannonball into the deep end of doubt and deconstruction with them. Go with them though. Now, the reason I say this and it's a little counterintuitive to some of us to the way we're raised. The reason why I say this is because our natural reaction, our temptation is to push back on it. If we have any level of spiritual authority or influence over someone else and they start doubting God, like that's a big deal. I don't want my friends, I don't want my family, I don't want my kids to walk away from God. So they start doubting God, we freak out, we get afraid and sometimes we just power up, especially if it's our kids. The high schoolers are smart. They're, they're, they're more, they got more access to information today than they ever have before, which means they've got better questions today at their age than high schoolers ever had before. And the temptation, mom and dad, is when they start asking you the hard questions and you don't know the answers to them or you don't like where this conversation's leading, just flex, right? To do the mom flex, the dad flex, and shut it down. This is how the conversation usually goes. Uh, hey, dad, I wanna talk about evolution. And you're like, it's not true, trust me. What about sex? My body's on fire right now. It's bad. Don't do it. What about science? Anti-God, conspiracy. Do not go into science. When you go to college, they'll brainwash you and steal your soul. Okay. uh, What about other religions? They're evil. How do you know? I just know they're evil. What about like justice stuff? Preach the gospel, son. That's it. But dad, it's, it's all over the Bible. Look, you're young. You're passionate. One day you'll grow out of it, kid. Well, what about the Bible? It's true. Read it more than you currently are. Uh, what about my non-Christian friends? They're all going to hell. Unless you hand them these pamphlets and see them at the poll. Now go do your homework. 
Now we all laugh and we chuckle and we giggle because it's a caricature of how those conversations go, but not by that much. Not by that much. Now, young folks, I'm gonna talk to you for just a second. I'm gonna talk to you guys a lot in this series, all right? If you don't like it, if you feel uncomfortable, like I'm staring a hole through you, deal with it. Maybe it's God talking to you. Now, um, here's what I wanna say. I wanna speak on behalf of your parents. You do need to cut that when it comes to your doubts and your questions, you gotta cut them a little bit of slack. Right, just a little bit. Because, okay, well, I'm a parent. My kids are young. They haven't even come of age yet to like start asking the hard questions. But I can go ahead and tell you right now, maybe my greatest fear as a dad is that one day my kids will, uh, will reject me and my Jesus. It's terrifying for me. Um, because Jesus is everything for, for me. So look, if your parents like get kind of squirrely when you ask the hard questions, they get kind of angry or irrational, like, oh, go to your room. Like, like just, you be the adult in the room, just for a second, say, mom, dad, I love you. Mom and dad, by the way, if they're asking you the questions, you're lucky that they're asking you because they got the YouTubes, all right, and they ain't going there. So like, pray, thank you, God, right? But like, give them a, give them a second. Show them grace, give them a little bit of time because trust me, they love you. That's, that's why they're acting the way they do. They love you and they wanna walk along with you. Now, moms, dads, though, parents, friends and loved ones, this is not an excuse though to ignore the hard stuff. We can't, you can't ignore the hard stuff forever. If you think you can ignore the hard stuff forever, you are wrong. This is an essential part of identity formation as, as uh, young people come of age. Reality here, and this might be a reality check for some of you, but at some point, your kids are going to test the faith and the values that they inherit from you. They're going to. Deconstruction is inevitable. In fact, psychologists will tell you that it is totally necessary for them to uh, form their own unique identity apart from you. So what are we to do? Well, um, I actually heard a, a, a Christian author Describe this uh, process once with the metaphor of fence building. He's like, okay, when you're raising kids, it's like, it's like building a fence in the backyard. Okay, when your kids are young, they just play in the backyard and you build the fence, right? And every post you put in the ground represents a belief or value that's important to you. And when they're young, they don't even notice it, right? They just play within the fence. They're just there. They're just happy to be out in the backyard. But as they get older, they begin to notice the fence, in fact, sometimes they may kind of grab a couple of the posts and shake them a little bit. In fact, sometimes they may break a post in the fence or jump over the fence and come back or drive the car through the fence and stay out past curfew and then just pull right back in, right? And as that process of them discovering and testing the fence happens, if your response is to say, knock it off, give me the keys, build a higher fence, we're gonna cement fortify this sucker here. Like, like that, if that's your response, then guess what? you're totally ignoring the reality that you're about to unleash them into because sooner or later, they're gonna move out the house, move down the road and build their own fence. You can't stop that. It's coming. And I think what you want, or at least what I want, is that when they go and build their own fence, you want them to build their fence as close to yours as, as possible and maybe even a little better spot. Now, if you want that to happen, that's the result you want. I'm gonna give you two pieces of advice. Uh, first one is this. Live out what you believe. Be an authentic example of what you claim to be true. 
But you cannot control whether or not your kids believe in God, but you can control whether or not they believe and trust you and the sincerity and integrity of your faith. You can. So be an authentic version of Jesus. You don't have to be perfect. Say you're sorry when you're not. being an authentic version of Jesus. And then second, when they start testing the fence, go with them. Shake the post. Like, it's okay to say, I don't know. Let's figure out, you know, why we believe this thing. Or it's, it's, it's honestly okay if they find like a compromised area in the fence to say, you know what, let's break that part down and rebuild it. I got that one wrong. You'll earn more respect, not less with your kids. Now, all that having been said, I did something fun this week. I think I'm going to start doing it a lot because it's fun. Um, uh, I got together with Jacob, our high school pastor, and I was like, I think it would be really cool over the course of this series to actually hear from the young people in our church. To like ask them, what are your doubts? What are your faith questions? What are you struggling with? And then just real time answer some of those from stage in the sermon. So uh, Jacob got on uh, Insta Live last week. He posted a poll on there. He got, got a bunch of feedback from the students. And I got tons of great questions from them. Can't answer them all in one sermon. We'll, we'll, do, we'll do a few every single sermon. But today I want to answer four. We're going to call this the question from the youths moment. All right? So youths, those are great questions. I'm going to answer a few of your questions right now. It's actually going to help me teach uh, the adults in the room as well. Here's the first question. I thought this was a good one. Youths. Uh, what do you do? What do you do when you feel doubt in God? Great question. And again, in line with what I've been saying so far, I would encourage you with this. Chase it. Chase. Now chase it with people who love you. Don't chase it alone. Don't chase it with YouTube, all right? Chase it with people who may know scripture more or better than you. But chase it. Honestly chase it. Honestly go after it. Now, the, the reason why I feel like I, I have to say this is because if, if you grew up in a church like me, and, and many of us did, or, or in a, I guess, a Christian environment like, like me, uh, a lot of us were taught to believe that somehow intellectual certainty was what good faith looks like. Like I just have to convince myself that, I'm, that I believe. I just I believe, I believe, I believe. If you just believe hard enough, right? You can like, pop a blood vessel believing. I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, right? And then God will give you what you believe, right? You just gotta convince yourself that you believe though. But that's not faith. Certainty is not faith. If God wanted uh, certainty to be faith, he would have just called it certainty. Not faith. See, the word faith in and of itself implies an element of uncertainty, of trust. Here's what you'll find. If you read the testimony of the, the biblical heroes throughout Scripture, you'll find that certainty is not what made them great leaders of the faith. No, it was their willingness to continue to trust in God and follow Jesus in the face of great uncertainty. That's what made them truly faithful. So what should you do with your doubt? You should chase it. Big point here. I believe deconstruction done right. Doubt done right is discipleship. And that's our goal, to become more like Jesus, become a disciple and a follower of his. Question number two from the youths. It's a great question, youths. Here's another one. Um, youths, by the way, this isn't actually a question. The way some Christians present it makes me doubt if this is a religion of love. 
Now, while this is not a question, I included it today because I just want to say amen. That's true. That's like a little louder for those in the back. Like that is, that's so true. But with that said, here would be the question. I don't know who asked it. Here'd be the question I'd ask you to chew on, all right? Yes, there are some people who are very unloving and not Jesus looking. But, but is it fair to Jesus to judge him based on his worst abusers? You know what I mean? Like, like we got some good stuff all about Jesus right here. If you don't have one, we'll buy you one, right? Like, and, and I just think you should judge Jesus based on Jesus. Not the people who, who distort uh, who he is. Okay, so I'll give you an example. Okay. My son, some of you guys know this. I talked about this a few weeks ago. My son is, uh, is currently playing coach pitch. Uh, he's playing coach pitch and, uh, at South Long Little League. And um, his team is called the Cubs. Okay. They, uh, they've got Cubs jerseys with Cubs on it. They've got Cubs replica hats. The beginning and the end of the game, it's like one, two, three, Cubs. And they're like super excited to, to be the Cubs. Um, now, here's the thing. I'll tell you this since he's not in here. Here's the thing I'll tell you. They are not good. You know what I'm saying? Like, they're not good. Like, we've won one, my assistant coach is in the room. Okay, we've won one game so far. And the reason why they're not good for the record is not the coaching. I can promise you that. It's because we got the six-year-olds, everybody else got like the sevens and eight-year-olds, all right? It is what it is, right? But they're still excited to be the Cubs. Now, judging Jesus based on his worst abusers would be similar to, I don't know, driving to South Oldham Little League at Peggy Baker Park and saying, holy cow, honey, look, the Cubs are playing. I thought they played at Wrigley. What are they doing here from Chicago? Well, let's watch them play. Oh, man, those, they stink. It's not fair, right? That's not fair to the Chicago Cubs who play at Wrigley, who are in the top 1% of the top 1% of the top 1% of baseball players on planet Earth and make millions of dollars to do it. It's not fair to judge them based on the Little League Cubs. And in the same way, it ain't fair to judge Jesus based on so many of us who get it so wrong. Let's just judge him based on him and, and show each other a whole lot of grace, especially when we're living through a pandemic. Next question from the youths. Question number three. Oh, this is a good one. What is the best way to keep your faith strong and keep away the doubt? Keep your faith strong and keep away the doubt. Now, good question. I want to dispute part of it. Again, the goal is not to keep away the doubt. The goal is to strengthen faith. We want to do that. But we don't want to keep away the doubt because, again, doubt can be healthy. It can be good for us. This is one of the beautiful things about Christianity, y'all, that makes it unique compared to all the other major world religions out there. We are taught that consistent and continual intellectual repentance is the right thing to do. It's actually essential to being a Christian. We should hold what we believe with confidence, but at the same time, confident humility, open-handedly, as if we don't have all the answers, as if we still have a lot of room to grow, and as if other people who have the Holy Spirit inside of them have something to teach us. And then we spend the rest of our life becoming more and more holy and more and more conformed to the image of Christ. What a beautiful thing. We're, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to admit we're wrong. It's okay when we're wrong. That's what grace is for. Back to the diagram. This is why I drew the diagram the way that I drew it. With the little circle around deconstruction and reconstruction. Right? Because I think that once you get to the deconstruction, reconstruction phase, you just kind of cycle through. Hopefully you cycle up, right, towards God. You deconstruct 
uh, faulty beliefs, uh, beliefs and reconstruct something more holy and, and more truthful and more biblical, more Jesus-looking. And then you deconstruct that and you reconstruct something even more holy. And you deconstruct and reconstruct, deconstruct and reconstruct. You know what we call that as Christians? Sanctification. And that's a good thing. There's just one interesting spot uh, in... Uh, in John, it's in his final discourse, the last night before uh, Jesus is crucified, where he's talking to the disciples. He's like, don't worry, when I leave you, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit. And then in one of the, the teachings, he describes the Holy Spirit as a teacher. He says, the Holy Spirit's gonna be your teacher. And I love that. Because if you're a good teacher, you know that actually part of the process is creating cognitive dissonance among your students. Doubt if you will, in order to bring them to a higher level of enlightenment or truth. So you know what I've come to believe? I've come to believe that oftentimes the rumblings inside of me, the doubts, the questions that emerge or the moments of introspection where I'm like, I don't know if I got that right. Sometimes that's just the Holy Spirit actually poking, prodding, and teaching me more about Jesus. Which brings us to question number four from the youths. This is the last one. Youths, I'm proud of you. Good job. Send me more for next week. I love this one. And this is good to, to curb everything that we've said so, more, uh, so far. Question number four. Can I doubt too much? Can I doubt too much? Now, I don't know if I would necessarily say it like that. I don't know if I would ask it like that. Because I don't necessarily believe you can doubt too much if it's done in a healthy way. What I do believe is that you can doubt from an unhealthy place or an unhealthy heart. I've seen this happen hundreds of times. Okay, this is how it normally plays out, right? I've seen it happen to my friends. I've seen it happen to young people. Um, they grow up in like a, a conservative Christian context that's totally co-opted by the very worst of right-leaning politics. So they grow up. They realize some of the toxicity they're in. They don't like it. It hurts them or they feel lied to, or whatever it may be. And so in response to that, out of anger and rage, or maybe out of embarrassment, because they're like, how did I get duped into this? You know what they do? They don't deconstruct and reconstruct in a healthy way to Jesus. Instead, I've seen it so many times. They swing all the way over to the other end of the spectrum, to the opposite extreme to like a secular version of Christianity that's totally been co-opted by left-leaning politics and they forget what Jesus has to say about anything, which is wrong in its own right. I see it time and time uh, again. The goal there, by the way, isn't deconstruction and reconstruction. The goal there is demolition. I'm gonna swing over here and do the opposite just to spite you because I wanna tear your house down. I wanna burn the wreckage and then I wanna dance on the ashes. That's the heart that it comes from. And that ain't where it's at. There's a better way. It's the way of Jesus. It's looking to him. It's transcending the politics and the way that it tries to pull Christianity to the left, to the right, and just learning his moral code, learning his moral vision, following him the best we can and trusting that he actually will do what he said he would do and provide us with abundant life. Look, healthy doubt, healthy deconstruction done right is discipleship. I want this to be a place where we do it right. Now, that leads us Finally, to our very strange passage that uh, Rex read beautifully. You're beautiful, Rex. Uh, the passage about Jacob wrestling with God. 
Okay, so as the story unfolds, just to put this into context for you, J- Jacob's got a r- he's having a rough go at it. For several years now, um, he's had tiff after tiff with his in-laws, his father-in-law Laban, just a terrible relationship there. He's got family troubles that I'm not even gonna get into, but let's just say he married two sisters, which is only the Old Testament can take us there. He marries two sisters and he tells, he tells one sister that he loves her way more than the other so you can imagine the home environment. And, and then he runs away from like his, the, their family, Laban. And, and this particular night when he starts wrestling with God, uh, uh, he's pretty convinced that the next day he's gonna die because he's gonna come face to face with his brother Esau who has a to kill list and Jacob's like one through five, right? So in this moment where he is bewildered, and confused and afraid, sad, he gets in a wrestling match. And I just want to recap the story for you. And I think it is so ironic here that, that this story actually creates more questions than it answers because of the point of the story. Okay, bear with me. First, he sends all of his family away and is all alone in the camp by a riverbed. Not sure why he wants to be alone, but he does it. Um, next, suddenly he's wrestling with a man. No clue why, no clue who the person is, like no clue why the fight started. Just want to wrestle? I don't know, like they just wrestle. Uh, then they wrestle literally all night, which by the way, isn't possible. If, you are, if you've ever wrestled before, if you've been a wrestler, this is why they make the period so short, right? Because it is exhausting. Oh, and add on top of that fun fact, Jacob's 97 years old at this point. No offense, to anyone in the room, but old man, is anybody 97 in here? It kind of proves my point, okay? All right, it kind of proves my point. Old man River ain't making it through a night of, of wrestling, all right? Uh, next, uh, the man he's wrestling with, they realize he's like perhaps God, I think it's God, or at least an angel of God. Hosea 12, four implies it might be an angel, not sure which. And then what's funny is like the God angel man realizes it's dawn, it's dawn. So we need to wrap things up. Just like a vampire angel God, I don't know. It's dawn. And so the God angel man then realizes he can't overpower Jacob, which isn't actually true if it's God or an angel. Um, well, and it isn't actually true based on what he does next because he touches Jacob's hip socket, breaks the old man river's hip. And yet Jacob still won't let go. He continues to demand a blessing. So we get with all these unanswered questions and weird spots of the story, we actually get to the point of the story. This is what God does next. God actually blesses him with a new name, Israel. And then he defines the name for him. He says, your name's Israel now because you've wrestled with God and with men. And I've won. Now, this is the first time uh, really in, in all the scriptures where the name Israel, an important name, right? The name Israel comes up to name Jacob and the people of God from this point forward as the wrestlers. I find that fascinating. You know, in ancient cultures, names were really important. In our cultures, like we millennials are just shooting from the hip, you know, Larkin, you know, like I'm guilty of it too, right? Um, But back then they would name you based on something that was core to your identity. So I believe when God names Jacob Israel here, he was revealing something very significant about who Jacob was and who his people would be. We would be wrestlers, big point here. From the beginning, one of the defining traits of God's people is their willingness 
to wrestle with him. Or said a bit differently, true biblical faith is being willing to go to the mat with God about whatever questions, doubts, trauma, or complaints we may have. We actually see this wrestling faith then played out throughout the scriptures in pretty much all biblical heroes. Like next we get Moses, who's just constantly wrestling with God. One of my favorite stories is in Genesis 32. Okay, so God's really angry at the Israelites because there's this whole golden calf thing. I'm sure you heard about it. And so God's like, Moses, done with them. I'm going to destroy them all and just start back over with you. And then it says that Moses like just begs God. He intercedes on behalf of of, uh, Israel. God, don't do it, okay, just spare him. And this is what's amazing. Exodus 32, 14, it said, in response to this, the Lord changed his mind about the disaster that he planned to bring on his people. Why? Because Moses was willing to wrestle with God. Next, we have, uh, we have poets like David and the psalmists. Have you read the Psalms? Who write like song after song after song of lament and grief with like irreverent language. Let's read Psalm 13. David says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep the sleep of death. It's honest. Then you have prophets like uh, Jeremiah, who has a five-chapter book called Lamentations, which is just, in graphic poetic detail, him complaining to God, mourning before God. Or you could just read his prophetic book, Jeremiah, where he literally questions God's justice to him and to the people over the Babylonian captivity. Then you have Habakkuk. Did you know that was a book in there? It's in there, Habakkuk, Tabakkuk, Habakkuk, Habakkuk. Right? And if you read like the subtitles in Habakkuk, or at least this is how my Bible does it, here's how it's broken out. It's three chapters. You have Habakkuk complains for the first time. God responds. Habakkuk complains for the second time. God responds. Habakkuk prays. The end. That's the book. I'll read to you Habakkuk's second complaint. And you tell me if you were at dinner table when you were like, I don't know, eight or nine years old and you prayed this to God, you tell me uh, how your mama would have responded. Oh Lord, my God, my Holy One, You are eternal. Good start, honey, right? This is like, by the way, saying, with all due respect. (laughs) When you're about to throw down on something. With all due respect, sir. uh, Surely you do not plan to wipe us out. Oh, Lord, our rock. You have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for our many sins. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we only sea creatures that have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in their nets while they rejoice and celebrate? And bless this food as a nourishment to our bodies. Amen. Right? Like, it's rough. Maybe my favorite Israel faith hero is Job. You know his story. Job's life falls apart. And for like the first two-thirds of the book, he holds it together. You give and take away, Lord. I'm just going to be faithful. But then finally his friends drive him crazy and he cracks. This is what he says in Job 30. He says, I cry to you, O God, but you don't answer. I stand before you, but you don't even look. You have become cruel towards me. You use your power to persecute me. You throw me into the whirlwind and destroy me in the storm. 
honest words. Now, God speaks up later and Job figures out that's not exactly what's going on. In fact, Job asks God some really strong questions and God answers them. He just answers totally different questions. But do you see what I'm getting at? I could give you more examples of Israel faith, but do you see what I'm getting at here? I think you get the point. Here's my point. Praise God for this. We are a people who have been blessed, named, and known to wrestle with God. It has been a Christian distinctive since the genesis of our ancestors, and I personally am so thankful for a God like that. Can I get personal with you just to close here? Uh, one day, maybe in this series, I'll have time to, to tell on my story. But, but if you know my story, then you know that I am wired a doubter. I'm just wired a skeptic. I'm preaching to myself through this sermon. Um, I, I believe that I doubted my way into the pulpit. I did. I doubted my way from a very selfish and self-centered life to a renewed relationship with Jesus. Then I doubted my way from that relationship into seminary. And then I doubted my way from seminary to Northeast Christian Church. And now you got me. Right, and uh, I would tell you, any level of, of spiritual maturity you think I have, or any biblical knowledge you think I've gained, it is 100% because I doubted my way to it with a God who allows it and with a community who guided it. That's it. And here's the beautiful thing about it. My God, my King, he welcomes it. He welcomes it. So I have come to believe the way that I'm wired, my skeptical brain, there's probably not any other God who would have me anyways. And, uh, and to be honest, I wouldn't have any other God. I want this one, the one that welcomes us to wrestle. I want a God who doesn't punish dissent, a God who doesn't demonize doubt, a God who doesn't rage on emotional honesty, a God who doesn't demean a skeptical kid, a God who doesn't demand blind submission, but instead, I want a God who patiently welcomes us to ask and wail and doubt and question and grieve and grow. And that's what I got. You know what I love about how the risen Jesus responds to doubting Thomas, by the way? I love that it's not with a vindictive spirit. Thomas had no reason to doubt. Okay, Thomas had spent three and a half years with Jesus. He'd seen him do miraculous things. He'd seen him like raise people from the dead. I don't know. Then he had seen him predict his own death and resurrection. Then he saw an empty tomb. Then all of his buddies were saying he's risen. No, seriously, Jesus is alive. And Thomas still wouldn't believe. And yet when he comes nose to nose with Jesus, you know what Jesus meets him with? Not shame, not a wag of the finger. Instead, he meets him with a word of peace and a merciful invitation. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And Thomas replies, my Lord, my God. This is the God I love, man. This is a God I love, a God that says, come and be honest, come and ask, come wrestle with the Father, and in so doing, come find life. Come find the way of Jesus. By the way, you know what I've found? Uh, Christians don't become Christians 
because they get answers to all their questions. They get some, but usually not all. Christians become Christians because they encounter someone who dwarfs all their questions, who towers over them. It's the same reason why, why people get married. But when you married her, when you married him, let's be honest, you were not certain about everything. There were still some doubts there. She had dated some sketchy dudes. Did you see his apartment? Like you got to move in with him? It's like you had, there were doubts in your mind. There were. You certainly weren't sure about what the next 50 years would hold before you, right? But you stepped into the relationship anyways. You want to know why? It wasn't because you had all the answers. It was because you were in love. In the same way, that's how I believe a relationship with Jesus is formed. Not because we get all the answers, but because we get Jesus. And when you begin to understand him, it's just like, wow. So look, I want to welcome you to encounter Jesus in this series. If you're a doubter, don't run, come back next week. Don't suppress it, ask it. Don't give up, lean in. Don't assume you're all alone, look around, you're not. And don't be afraid that God's gonna shame you. He welcomes you to wrestle. Instead, come wrestle with God. Come lay it all down before Jesus. And and here's what I believe. I believe you'll come to a place, like Doubting Thomas did, like I have, where you look to Jesus and you say, my Lord, my God.